Happy Monday, everyone. This is uh, London Live, but it's not Mike Stubbs. Devin Peacock filling in for Mike Stubbs today. Got a busy program for you on the go. We will be talking about GM Canada's decision to shut down their Oshawa plant this hour. The decision will mean 2,500 people will be out of a job, not to mention countless others potentially in spin-off jobs. Depending on what develops, some of her plans for interviews may change. Unifor President Jerry Dias is scheduled to speak live at 2 o'clock this afternoon. If that happens, we will carry that interview. The only way we won't is if they change the time or the audio is not good enough for broadcast or they don't do it at all. GM was supposed to uh, speak publicly earlier today and then decided not to. And sometimes uh, these uh, news conferences run a little bit late. So we will try to bring that for you today, depending on time. That is something we are looking at. We will have a lot of reaction and what has happened uh, since the announcement uh, later this hour. Uh, Depending on time, we also may talk about a new test for E. coli that we learned about uh, last week. This from the minds of uh, Western researchers. We'll talk about uh, London's housing market and its affordability talk about whether or not Canadians are nicer than Americans. Might also look into some research out of Western on naloxone kits that some schools are purchasing, whether that is a um, a worthwhile investment. Not so much in terms of lives, because obviously it would be, but is it cost-effective? And uh, the, the study research is quite interesting. Uh, certainly whatever we can do to uh, save lives, we must do. But it's a, a different uh, necessity for schools we are seeing, unfortunately, as the opioid crisis uh, continues uh, from coast to coast. Up first, though, a conversation with Rodney Stafford. As we learned uh, last week, Terry Lynn McClintock has been transferred back to the Grand Valley Institute for Women in Kitchener. She was at the women's prison in Edmonton after she was transferred out of the Healing Lodge in Saskatchewan. I'm not going to speak for uh, Rodney, but I know the next step for him is to see uh, McClintock's status return to maximum security. She's currently at medium security. That's where uh, the Kitchener... Uh, prison stands at. The Edmonton prison was also medium security, as was the Healing Lodge somehow. Uh, Rodney Stafford made a recent visit to Ottawa to speak to the head of Correctional Service of Canada and Kelly. We'll talk about that as well. Uh, We are joined, though, by uh, Rodney Stafford. I appreciate the time today. Thank you very much. No problem. Good afternoon, Devin. Well, I want to start just by going back to last week when you heard the news about Terry McClintock's transfer. What was your reaction? I was very, very happy. Um, it's a step in the right direction, getting her back to where she's from. And, yeah, just next steps, put her behind the real bars. How did you hear about the news? Uh, Corrections Canada once again contacted me to let me know that Terry Lynn had been transferred the evening before and told me they needed to tell me right away. Was there anything that you could learn from this other than she had been moved or like in terms of maybe her status being upped to maximum security or was it just a case she's been moved? No, it was just a case that she, apparently she was moved back to her, I I believe her home community. I think that's what they call it, the area um, where she originated from. So um, yeah, so they just brought her back. I know you would like to see her uh, status up to maximum security. Is there any way you can... um, uh, guesses that might be the next step based on all of this. She's basically back where she was a year ago or last December before she was moved uh, to the Healing Lodge. Correct. Um, yeah, next steps would be pushing her to um, back to Max. Um, like, uh, I have documentation directly from CSC showing offenses within, within the facility um, pri- prior to the lowering of her... Uh, love, uh, sorry, excuse me. Prior to the lowering of her security... Um, after her security, before the transfer, 
um, like it just a whole bunch of different things. So there's no reason why this this level shouldn't be switched back to max. Prison in general is not a place I don't think any of us would want to be, but medium sec- there's a real difference between medium and maximum security, and in medium security in Kitchener, as in Edmonton, uh, she's got it pretty cozy. Uh, for medium, yeah, she does have a pretty pretty cozy. She deserves to be in max. Medium offenders, they're they're there for a reason, and maybe some of them have worked their way down, but she hasn't even been given the chance to... She hasn't. She hasn't done anything whatsoever to warrant anything to have any leniencies. About a week ago, you traveled. Maybe a little over a week ago, you traveled uh, to Ottawa to meet with Ann Kelly. She's the head of uh, Correctional Service of Canada. How did that meeting go? Um, I was rather disappointed, to be quite honest. Um, we had asked um, Anne in her panel a few questions regarding how this was possible. How how knowing you had given me all the details, they had given me all the details, I'm presenting it to them. How How is it I see it as a problem? And they don't. Like, that was, that was one of my main questions. And then one of the other questions we had asked was if she had um, reviewed the material, anything to do with the uh, Tory case, Terry Lynn's incarceration or anything like that over the last two months, knowing all this was going on, and she hadn't. So it was basically a blatant slap in the face. Like, she couldn't give us any details, and she couldn't answer anything that we needed answers to. And this is the top official for CSE. So you're really no closer to learning exactly why this move was made then? Yeah, no, not at all. Was this a meeting you had to request, or did they invite you up uh, just to, for, for, to come meet and talk about this? Um. <laughs> I'm not quite sure how that worked out. I mean, I've been talking to a lot of different people. I I may have put a request out somewhere, and I may have got one. Um, but I, I think it was a mutual agreement to have a meeting. What was your takeaway from the meeting? Um, that there's a, a a big issue with Corrections Canada. Were you uh, based on, when when you got where the meeting would take place? Were you hopeful that you might walk away with more information, or did you go into it a little bit leery that maybe? Uh, you wouldn't get as much as you were hoping for. Um, well, I kind of figured I wasn't going to get any information, <laughs> to be honest. But I was kind of hoping to kind of get a grasp at where CSE was sitting at on all the issues, and apparently they can't give any answers. And that's kind of unfortunate because these are the people that put her in this position. They're the ones that have been transporting her all across Canada for the last year and now, and now back. Like for no reason, just wasting taxpayers' money. Based on your conversation with Ann Kelly, do you think that this type of a move uh, with you know a different offender could happen again? Where there, there uh, even though there are some rules have been changed uh, with this review from the federal government, that really there's not enough accountability to really look into some of these prisoner transfers. Well, I'd, I'd like to think they're going to look at them a lot closer now when it comes to transfers, um, and and go along with the policies and if the policies still don't fit they might have to make some more changes it's it's quite clear that offenders of this caliber are finding loopholes and being able to weasel their way through the system did you get the feeling from the interview with ann kelly that it was something uh, she wanted to do to to clear the air with you or something that she felt she had to do just because of the pressure you've been putting on them in my opinion it does uh, it did seem like it was something she did have to do. 
she felt like she had to do it just so she could say, you know, like I met with them, we spoke with them, gave them, gave them some details. Yeah, that's nice. You gave me all the information about all the new policy changes and stuff like that, what it's going to do to affect the future, but you can't give me any answers how the one we're worried about happened. What's uh, next for you now that you've uh, had this meeting and uh, this transfer has been made back to Kitchener for McClintic? I would like to at least speak to somebody else um, in regards to having her security pushed back to max. Um, prior to that, though, I would like to see about having her labeled a dangerous offender. She fits every category of the dangerous offender, and if she had been labeled a dangerous offender from the beginning, none of this would have happened. Will that be in tune with the last time we talked, you were in studio, we were just talking about something uh, nominally called uh, Tory's Law. Is that something that could be connected to Tory's Law potentially? I would like to think so, yes. Well, we will uh, follow this with interest. Uh, you've certainly uh, been front and center on this. Uh, Rodney, I appreciate your time today. No problem. Thank you very much, Devin. Thank you. That is uh, Rodney Stafford, the father of uh, Tory Stafford. Uh, about a week and a half ago, maybe, uh, he uh, made the trip to Ottawa, uh, to uh, to uh, talk to Ann Kelly, head of the Correctional Service of Canada. And uh, just from previous discussions with him about that meeting, it was uh, quite the, the white-knuckle travel because uh, they drove to Ottawa. It was snowing. Remember, if you go back, you know, a week, week and a half ago, we had uh, quite a bit of weather. It was uh, snowing, and they drove right through it. Uh, not the perfect timing, but uh, it's, it's the kind of meeting you want to go to, even if you're unsure of what the outcome will be. And Ottawa has received so much more snow than we have in this region. They have received a lot of snow, and it's not even December. We need to pause. On the other side, we will have more of London Live, and we will focus on the news out of Oshawa that General Motors is shutting down it's a plant in Oshawa in 2019. That and more when we return. This is London Live and Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on Global News Radio 980 CFPL. The big voice, he lies. Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs today. It is London Live, though. I want to turn our focus to uh, General Motors and to Oshawa because uh, there's a lot to get you caught up on. We'll spend the rest of the hour talking about this. Uh, Global News learned last night was confirmed today that General Motors is shutting down its Oshawa plant in 2019. It'll put over 2,500 employees out of work as uh, the automobile giant forges ahead with a global restructuring plan. Uh, GM said it's taking steps to improve its, quote, overall business performance by reorganizing its global product development staff, realigning its manufacturing capacity, and reducing the salaried workforce. The company said the move will save them $6 billion by the end of 2020, so bully for them. In a media release, uh, GM and uh, chairman, uh, GM chairman and CEO Mary Barra said the actions we are taking today continue our transformation to be a highly agile resilient and profitable company while giving us the flexibility to invest in the future. We rec recognize the need to stay in front of uh, changing market conditions and customer preferences to position our company for long-term success. It's not just Oshawa that's losing a plant here. Assembly plants also on the chopping block include one in Detroit and one in Warren, Ohio. GM said two additional plants outside of North America will cease operations by the end of 2019. A facility in South Korea 
was previously slated to be closed. It's also closing. The plant in Oshawa has been in operation since 1953. They've built models for Pontiac, Chevrolet, and Buick. Currently, the plant builds the Cadillac XTS, Chevrolet Impala, Chevrolet Silverado, and GMC Sierra. Thousands of workers at the plant walked off the job Monday morning, were told to go home after reports the uh, company was going to shut down operations. This GM employee calls the shutdown of the Oshawa plant difficult, spoke to a Global News reporter late last night. When did you find out? I found out earlier this evening around dinner time on Facebook. So, um, yeah, it was it, it was something some of us knew or we kind of knew something like this was coming, but we were never sure. We were always hoping for the best. How long have you worked here? 28 years. 28 years of your life at this plant? Yes. What and I'm trying last... to get the last two. <laughs> what have the last 28 years been like for you guys? It, For some of us, it's been very tough. Um, for myself personally, I don't have, didn't have a lot of sonority in the trades, so I was laid off a lot. And so I worked on the line in the trades, and, and finally I got back in, and we're going to close the plant. Have you heard anything from the company? Everything's been quiet. Every, uh, they they don't really say much. They keep things close to the chest. Usually, sometimes we find the uh, through the media is we find out more information through the media than we do through the company. Sometimes. I know they're expected to make an announcement tomorrow. They're not commenting right now tonight. But if you could characterize what does this mean to the community here in Oshawa well it's it's gonna absolutely be devastating for uh, the community the businesses uh, young families that work here that rely on General Motors all the supplier plants uh, it's absolutely gonna be hard on the community what has it meant to you uh, it's it's uh, it's it's hard to see anything like this close we are a very good strong educated workforce and and uh, we, we build a good product, and we're proud of that. You raised a family on this, uh, on this job here too? Yes, I have. And my, yes, it, it supported my, my children through university and college, and, and they're grown up now, and you know, so it, it's, it's helped a lot of families having these good paying jobs. Hearing uh, through uh, Facebook, as he was saying, that uh, you may be losing your job is uh, an absolutely terrible way to learn. Uh, Mark Holliday uh, also spoke to the media last night. He's had many family members work at the Oshawa plant over the years, said he was in disbelief over the news while talking to the media. Well, I, I was sitting on the couch and watching in the, the TV, and it said uh, breaking news about Oshawa General Motors, and... Um, I couldn't, be, I couldn't believe it. Uh, I had to rewind to see if I was seeing what I was seeing. And my nephew's there. Our whole family's worked there. I'm 57, so it, my grandfather started there. That's a long time. We've, I've always supported General Motors. I will continue to support General Motors until I know this is, if this is gone, I'm done. Uh, we have to buy from Ford because they're in Ontario. Like, I will not buy, I have an American car now, it's a GM, but I will never buy a car again that's not made here. This is, this is devastating for Oshawa. Um, there's not a lot of good jobs here. Uh, this, is, this was one of the good jobs. Uh, we're not getting any new jobs. 
anything new coming here. Uh, I really don't know what, what it's, 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 it's hard to say what's going to happen here. And for General Motors to do this always at Christmas is it makes it even that much harder. But I really feel sorry for the employees there and my nephew because they've gone through this so many times and to get this again, it's devastating. And I just can't believe it's happening again. Have you talked to your nephew once you uh, heard this news? Yeah, I called him and he had heard nothing about it. Um, he said he was, he'll let me know in the morning because he goes in on the day shift. But I don't think it'll be a, a somber day in here tomorrow. It'll be very sad. So it's kind of left you with a, a bad taste in your mouth? A very bad taste in my mouth because we've supported them. Uh, they're just throwing it in our face now that we don't need to be here. And as uh, Mark Holliday speaking to the media, as you heard, had many family members work at the plant over the years. Uh, if you go back and you pull back a couple of years, go back to 2015, there was some question about the future of the plant. Uh, GM cut about 1,000 jobs from the uh, facility, then shifted their strategy to building passenger cars, uh, from building passenger cars to trucks and SUVs at the time. GM did recently open an automotive innovation center in Markham. Company said that would add uh, 700 jobs. The uh, Camaro line was also removed from uh, the Oshawa plant back in 2015. That went to, uh, to uh, Michigan. That was part of those 1,000 jobs. It's tough, though, because in 2009, we had that huge uh, government bailout for auto manufacturers. That established that 16% of GM's manufacturing in North America was to be kept in Canada. Of course, unfortunately, that stipulation lapsed in 2016. And here we are, two hours, uh, two years later, and once that stipulation is gone, apparently so are the jobs. The automotive industry is not what's it, what it once was. If you go back to 1999, we produced about 3.1 million vehicles. Now we're about 2 million. If you look at the number of people employed in this country, it has shrunk over the years. It's unfortunate, especially in this region, because it's not just the direct jobs, it's the spinoff jobs as well. So what comes next? There's been a lot of talk about trying to rescue those jobs I'd say those jobs are gone. You can't rescue jobs that are on their way out. What you can do, though, is uh, support the workers and hopefully attract business and new companies to Oshawa, to Ontario in general, to replace those jobs. That and more on the other side of the news. We need to pause for the bottom of the hour news when we come back. More of uh, London Live. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on Global News Radio 980 CFPL. Welcome back to London Live. Uh, Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs. We are continuing our coverage of the news out of Oshawa this morning regarding the plant being closed once its production run ends in 2019. And in case you are just tuning in, uh, General Motors has announced that the production plant in Oshawa, along with four other facilities in the United States, as part of a global reorganization, will be uh, closing. 
as the company focuses, focuses on electric and autonomous vehicle programs. The auto manufacturer announced the closures as part of a sweeping strategy to transform their product line and manufacturing process in order to meet changing demand in the transportation industry. A move, they say, will save them $6 billion a year by 2020. And my stupid phone is going off because uh, Siri thought I was talking to Siri. <laughs> uh, GM says they're going to be reducing their salaried uh, and salaried contract staff by 15%. That includes 25% fewer executives. So this morning, dozens of workers were seen walking out of the Oshawa assembly plant with some saying they were very unhappy with news of the plant closure. Unifor, the union representing more than 2,500 workers at the plant, says it was told that there is uh, no product allocated after 2019. Politicians have been quick to respond to this. We'll bring you some of that response now. First up here is Premier Doug Ford responding to the, quote, devastating news. Last night, Oshawa was devastated by news of the possible closure of all of its General Motors operations. There are nearly 5,000 families in Oshawa whose livelihoods rely on these jobs and whose lives are now on the line. Can the Premier provide an update on his conversations with GM, Speaker? Premier. Well, today's uh, announcement that GM is, is going to make is absolutely devastating. It's devastating for the people in Oshawa, the people that not only work at GM, but the surrounding areas that rely on GM workers. It's devastating for the supplier base. And I think a lot of people are forgetting about the supplier base, that 6,600 people could be affected by this. I just want to reassure each and every person that's being affected by this, our government will stand shoulder to shoulder with them. We'll do whatever it takes to make sure they get back on their feet and they get proper training. But again, we will make sure that we are there for these people and we will turn it around. We're going to stay positive even in a negative environment like this. And I guarantee you, and I promise you, that they will be back on their feet. Thank you. This audio obviously is from Queen's Park earlier today. Uh, Doug Ford also shared how he spoke with Prime Minister Justin Trudeau earlier today on the issue. I had a conversation with the Prime Minister this morning, making sure that we're both on the same page, and I can assure you we're both on the same page. We may have our political differences, but when it comes to supporting the people of Durham and Ontario, we're on the same page. A couple of the asks. <laughs> We're asking for a series of changes to the employment insurance eligibility, uh, similar to what has been done in the past for the forestry and Alberta's oil patch. We want to extend the EI eligibility by five weeks to, to the maximum of 50 weeks from 45 in impacted EI regions as done Order. in hard-hit areas before. Position come to order. Extend, extend the duration of work-sharing agreements an additional 38 weeks to 76 weeks and allow immediate reapplication for the expired agreements as currently being done for the forestry. So if people are working part-time, they're still going to be eligible for EI. Reintroduce the Career Transition Assistance Initiative to retrain workers. Thank you. Uh, it was quite the uh, the scene at Queen's Park today. Premier uh, Ford and NDP leader Andrea Horvath had quite the back and forth. Here is the, I'm going to share two parts of this back and forth because it it rises in intensity. Here's the first part where it's a little tense. We'll play the second part in a moment, but here's the first part where the intensity started to rise. 
Speaker, I'm pretty shocked to hear not only is this government prepared to leave those workers dangling without a job and not fight for their jobs, but also he's telling us, the Premier's telling us, that the federal government apparently is not prepared to fight for the jobs in Oshawa. People don't want an adjustment program. They want to keep their jobs. and this Premier, what support has the government offered to the mayor-elect and the people of Oshawa as they work to keep their good jobs in their community? Premier. I'll, I'll continue on, uh, Mr. Speaker, through yourself. Uh, as part of the, the assistance uh, that we require is to develop a plan to increase EI durations for long-tenured workers. So if someone's been working there for a number of years, that they're impacted, and especially EI regions, because EI is broken into regions. Uh, increase the federal transfer to Ontario for skills training via labour market development agreement and uh, workforce development agreement. What we're what we're proposing, Mr. Speaker, since we're order, since what we're we're proposing come to order. Man, they, they don't they don't want you to uh, to speak around here again. As a first step, I'll be authorizing Employment Ontario to deploy its Rapid Reemployment and Training Services program. This will provide impacted local workers with a targeted local training and job services to help them regain employment as quickly as possible. And here is where tensions really boiled over. Well, Speaker, it's all so much easier to call the game than to buck up and fight for good jobs. This government's calling the game. The auto sector is a vital part of Ontario's economy, and government policy has been crucial to ensuring that that, that industry has been successful in our province. However, in the past, this Premier has shunned the idea of an auto, in, uh, auto strategy, and they have denounced the role of government investment in creating jobs. The people of Oshawa need to hear that the Premier is ready to use every tool at their disposal to protect their jobs government in Oshawa. Can the government give people that assurance? Through you, Mr. Speaker, you want to buck up and stand up for jobs? For 15 years, you destroyed this province. 300,000 jobs were destroyed because you voted for the Liberals 97 percent of the time. You destroyed the, the energy sector. You destroyed manufacturing. You destroyed 300,000 families that are trying to put food on the table. That's what you destroyed. We're turning this province around, Mr. Speaker. We're lowering energy costs. We're lowering gas prices. We're, we're creating an economy that companies want to come to Ontario for the first time in 15 years as you destroyed this province hand-in-hand hand with your Liberal buddies. You raised taxes, raised energy costs, raised gas prices. You for the carbon tax. You have personally destroyed this province. That's what you've done.
So that's the uh, provincial uh, level. Federally, uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau tweeted about the closure earlier today saying, and I quote, GM workers have been part of the heart and soul of Oshawa for generations. We'll do everything we can to help the families affected by this news get back to their feet. Yesterday, I spoke with GM's Mary Barra to express my deep disappointment in the closure. Navdeep Baines is the Federal Minister of Innovation. He spoke on this issue just after 11 o'clock this morning. Craig played the first part of his comments. I want to play the second half now as it's got some interesting tidbits. This is about uh, six minutes long. Mr. Baines, when exactly did you learn this this decision was coming and what steps, if any, did you take in the last days to try and get them to change their minds? So the company officially told us yesterday. uh, We've been engaging with them uh, for months to talk about, again, the future prospects of the Oshawa plant. But they made this official announcement to us yesterday in the context of their overall global restructuring. You learned about it before unofficially, though. No, I mean we talked about them about the Oshawa plant, but they had no, they had made no specific uh, acknowledgement of the the future of this plant. Uh, in 2016, as you're familiar with, uh, the unions were engaging with uh, all the different GM, Ford, Chrysler, uh, and getting new mandates, and so these were part of ongoing conversations for several years with regards to Oshawa. But they officially told us yesterday that this is in the context of the overall global restructuring. Now, what did you say to them at that point? What did you say to them at that point when they told you that? For me, when I found out, this was obviously deeply disappointing. Uh, as I said, this is devastating for the workers in Oshawa and the impact it's having on the community. Uh, from our perspective, uh, we are, are uh, we are really uh, personally, I'm very, very hurt by this. Uh, I think this is. Uh, from someone who started his career in the automotive sector, I know how important this sector is. Uh, I started my career uh, in this sector, and I acknowledge uh, the impact this has on the families, the communities, and so many suppliers as well. So that's why we've been very clear that we're going to continue to defend and support the automotive sector and the automotive workers. Have you any indication that the, that the plant could remain open through you know the work of you and, and the provincial government? At this stage, they have not. They've said this is part of the overall global restructuring plan, uh, that this is the path that they're going to move forward on. Uh, they do have a footprint of 8,000 employees in Canada before they made this announcement. They have a facility in Ingersoll and St. Catharines and they've got an R&D facility in Markham as well. So this, they do still have a jobs in Canada but this is a significant loss uh, for Oshawa and for the community. And then, have you heard from any of the other uh, auto manufacturers? Ford for example is also facing some tough times restructuring. Do you have any indication that, that they... No, at this time, no. This is the, uh, we've had productive conversations with other uh, manufacturers. As I mentioned, we announced uh, investments in the engine facility for Ford, for example, and the R&D facility right here in Ottawa. Uh, we've made similar announcements with Toyota, with Linamar as well, and Honda. Since 2015, we've seen $5.6 billion worth of investments in the automotive sector. $4.1 billion is attributed to direct support uh, from the government. So we invested $393 million in 39 different projects, which has leveraged $4.1 billion of investments in 2015. But make no mistake, this is not about uh, those investments. This is Today is really about the workers in Oshawa and the impact this is having on them. And that's why we're very, very uh, disappointed with the news. The industry is changing, though. If, if uh, GM wants to put more emphasis on clean uh, vehicles, uh, zero emission vehicles, is this a sign that 
this is, might be the first of many restructuring announcements. Uh, this specific restructuring announcement, the way it was communicated to us, had to do with respects to the fact that their sedan vehicle sales are on the decline and their light vehicles around trucks, for example, is on the incline. So this has to do more with uh, consumer preferences and different products that are in demand. Uh, but obviously there's other aspects to uh, consumer preferences, as you mentioned, electric vehicles, clean technology comes into play. But the way they described it to us was that their sedan vehicle sales on decline and they're selling more trucks and therefore this is part of the overall global restructuring. Haven't we fallen prey to some economic nationalism here? We know that President Trump wants jobs to come back to the United States. Isn't this what's happened here? Uh, there's been significant closures and job losses in the United States as well as part of GM's global restructuring. So I don't think Canada uh, or the U.S., uh, this has to do anything in that context. It has to do with the company's overall goal, uh, overall strategy. And they've made this announcement, which has had negative impact and consequences in Canada, in Oshawa, but also in the U.S. as well. Thank you, sir. Jerry Dias, what have you said to Jerry? What has he spoken to you? Are you working together? He's close with you guys after new NAFTA. Could you expand on that relationship? Which is We do have a positive working relationship uh, with uh, Jerry Diaz and uh, the uh, union movement, and particularly uh, with respect to the automotive sector. Uh, my understanding is that they are right now in the process of a strike. Uh, a short-term strike uh, at GM to uh, demonstrate their protest and their concern and their disappointment with this announcement by General Motors. Uh, we are there to support the workers. This is really about them. These are about their families and the impact this is having. Uh, and we'll work with Jerry Diaz. We've done so in the past when we've made investments in the automotive sector. We negotiated and worked very closely with Jerry Diaz when we protected and shielded the automotive sector in the NAFTA conversations. And so we have a very positive and constructive working relationship with them. Decision, sir. I'm talking about what have you spoke? Have you spoken to him? I'll be reaching out to him momentarily uh, to to engage with him and to get a better understanding from his perspective. But they've issued a statement, uh, and I'll be speaking with my provincial counterpart and my municipal counterpart as well. And the prime minister just spoke a few moments ago with the premier Ford to talk about how we can work together to protect the workers. Perfect. Thank you so much. It was a mistake. Now, in retrospect. Or was that, was that a smart investment? Look, from our perspective, uh, these are really important jobs, good quality middle class jobs. 500,000 jobs are connected to the automotive sector, and uh, we want to continue to uh, defend the workers and the sector. Thank you very and much. You Merci beaucoup. the question yeah. at all. Was that a mistake, giving them all that money now that they're packing up and leaving? Look, we want to uh, defend uh, the automotive sector the way we defended the aerospace sector, the way we work closely with the oil and gas sector. Uh, the economy is really important to us. It's our number one priority. Uh, in 2008, 2009, we realized the situation at that time was very dire. The previous government, the Conservative government, had made significant investments. This is not only about the auto workers, but this has to do with suppliers and dealers and the impact this has. Like I said, 500,000 jobs are connected to the automotive sector, both direct and indirect. And so we're going to continue to support and defend the automotive sector and the automotive workers. Thank you. Thank you, Minister. That is uh, Navdi Bain speaking earlier today in Ottawa about the uh, news out of Oshawa. Well, we will pause and come back. We'll continue our coverage of GM's closure of their plant in Oshawa. You're listening to London Live. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on Global News Radio 980 CFPL. Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs. Once you heard the news out of Oshawa, questions started to arise about the future of GM's other operations in Ingersoll, St. Catharines, and Markham. For all now, all signs point to everything continuing. 
In this area, our attention is, of course, directed at Cami Ingersoll. Workers at Cami are sure to know people who work in Oshawa. There is some, quote-unquote, good news to report on the Cami front. They're starting to see some retirements at the plant from workers who were hired 30 years ago. That has opened the door for some workers who are laid off about a year ago to return. To talk about that, we're joined by Joe Graves. He's the president of Unifor Local 88. Thanks for your time today. No problem. Uh, I wanted to uh, just start with uh, talking about uh, this news out of Oshawa that we are hearing about. came out last night. Um, learning more this morning about uh, what looks like to be the, the shutdown of the Oshawa plant. Um, from your standpoint in at Cami and Ingersoll, um, what's your reaction to that news? The, re- the initial reaction is it's devastating news for the people of Oshawa. And I know I have a lot of friends down in Oshawa that are going to be affected from this. And they make a great product there. It's just, I think, with GM, they're restructuring not just in Canada, but across North America, I think, globally as well. Yeah, it does appear to be this is part of a maybe a global shift in their production, you know, looking maybe more at uh, automated vehicles. I, I don't know if that's much consolation for the people losing their job. And it's unfortunate when you have people making good product that's, that's uh, profitable where this still happens. It does happen, but I don't think anybody really knows the the long-term effect it's going to have on the town of Oshawa. With those are really good-paying jobs, and unfortunately, the town, uh, the city of Oshawa, is going to miss out on a lot of income coming in, both for income tax and stuff like that. But the families will be affected by the shutdown. Um, I do know they had to give a year's notice, so that's why it's um, being given right now. The uh, the spinoff effect. I mean, there's I mean parts uh, plants that could be affected, but also within the community in terms of you know restaurants, you know coffee shops, uh, just general you know money that's raised. I know Unifor is always really good at that. So there's other spinoff spinoff effects beyond just you know parts plants and everything. Exactly, like United Way is one um, organization that really profits from every Unifor plant across Canada. Uh, we're actually going through our, our United Way campaign right now, and it's amazing how much the members of Unifor do contribute. Oshawa, that will be a big hit to the United Way of Oshawa area as well. Does something like this uh, have an impact on the floor in Cami? I mean, you guys have been doing uh, good work for a long time as well, and luckily uh, right now in, in a different situation than, uh, unfortunately, Oshawa is. Uh, you said it. Luckily, right now, we're, we seem to be fine, but when... GM's closing plants all across North America. Everyone, it's always in the back of everyone's mind that, you know, when and if, you know, they could do it to us, you know. So people do, they know people in Oshawa as well, so they get nervous. So the news of something like this, how they can just go ahead and close a plant, is always in the back of someone's mind. Uh, there is uh, some positive news that we can pass along out of uh, Cami. I know there have been some um, uh, people who have decided to uh, retire recently, and uh, there are some uh, workers who were on layoff who now have a chance to come back, and I guess in a couple different stages, looks like, possibly. Yes, we have uh, our population of our plant uh, was hired in, a large population of our plant was hired in 1989, so a lot of these people are now hitting the 30 and out threshold to be able to retire early. So the numbers are really coming in for people leaving, so that's a lot of uh, GM to recall 25 people December 1st, and we're really hoping that uh, in the new year a lot of the laid-off workers who are continue to be laid-off for now over a year and a half will be recalled over the next year. Do you have uh, any specific numbers in terms of uh, what types of those numbers we could see for maybe 2019 but also maybe 2020? Well, in 1990, uh, 1989 there was... Uh, there's quite a few people hired, so I've, for the 30 and out threshold, there is 
around 400 people who will be eligible to retire this year. And I think in 2020, there's around 400 people as well who would hit that threshold. doesn't mean they're going to retire. It's just that they're eligible to retire. Okay. Uh, the, the Equinox is still looks like it's uh, selling strong. I mean, uh, and I know it's always received uh, high, high uh, grades. Uh, a source of pride for people at the plant? Very much so. I think we're in every quality and production uh, awards. We're right near the top, if not at the top. We're at the threshold that we said uh, has been amazing from the employees who are building the vehicle on Ingersoll here. So we continue to do that. We hope we're rewarded with future product as well. All right, uh, Joe, I certainly appreciate your time today. Thank you very much. No problem, Tim. That is uh, Joe Graves, the president of Unifor Local 88. We need to pause and come back. We'll wrap up the first hour of the program. This is London Live and Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on Global News Radio 980 CFPL. Just enough time to tee up the second hour of the program. We've been talking about GM Oshawa for most of the first hour. We will continue that just after the news. We will uh, go live to Jerry Dias, president of uh, Unifor, and his comments on the uh, developments today out of Oshawa. That and more in the second hour of the program. This is London Live and Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on 980 CFPL. Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs. We are awaiting the start of a uh, news conference by uh, Jerry Dias, who is, uh, maybe it's not a news conference, he's going to speak publicly on the uh, closure of uh, the Oshawa plant uh, by general managers. Uh, Just watching the feed right now, he is moments away from speaking by all accounts. So when that uh, goes live, we will uh, carry it for you. I'll be interested to hear his comments on this. Last hour, we were hearing from, you know, the NDP, hearing from the PCs, as they were going back and forth in Queen's Park. It sounds as though Andrew Horvath would favor some form of uh, more, maybe a, some, a, I won't say a bailout, but uh, corporate welfare to really push that forward. Maybe it would work, maybe not, but it's hard to save those jobs just necessarily. Let's go live to uh, Jerry Dias speaking now. Guys, it gives you an idea of who we're dealing with. September the 20th, 2016. A letter from General Motors to me as a result of negotiations. Dear Mr. Dias, as a result of your deep concern about job security in our negotiations and the many discussions which took place over it, this will confirm that during the life of the new master agreement until September 21st, 2020, the company will not except as otherwise agreed to by the parties, and we never agreed to anything, close or sell any plant or ongoing business in whole or in part covered by this agreement. So here we go into negotiations in 2016, and we all know what the issue was. It was Oshawa. And we fought like hell, and we made sure that General Motors understood that there would be no closure during the life of the agreement. And you did everything, everything, for the last two years with the shuttle. You're the number one plant that they've got, quality, productivity, you're number one in every matrix. We got a phone call. They set up a conference call for yesterday at four o'clock. 
where they wanted to have a discussion. The problem is, is I got a call at 3.20 from the CBC hearing rumors that GM was making a major announcement. And within the major announcement, it was going to include the Oswa facilities. So when we got on the call at 4 o'clock, they said, look, we have to have a discussion with you about Oswa. So we just got a, con we just got a call from the CBC telling us that you're announcing tomorrow that you have no products allocated for Oshawa after December in 2019. And there was silence on the other end of the phone. And then the conversation started to verify that that was in fact one of the issues that they were announcing. So today GM amount announced a major global restructuring including the closure of four plants in the United States the Hamtranic facilities, the Lordtown facilities, and two powertrain operations. We met with GM today, and I'm here to tell you in what we told them. They are not closing our damn plant without one hell of a fight. you see, we're sick and tired of General Motors shipping all of our jobs to Mexico. We've spent the last 15 months in negotiations of a new NAFTA to change the landscape. But of course we know that the terms don't kick in for a few years left. As we sit here today, let me walk through just a little numbers for you because of what we're dealing with. Five years ago, we built the exact same amount of cars for General Motors in Canada that they did in Mexico. Within five years, if you look at General Motors' projection, which does not have an Oshawa in it, we will be building 190,000 cars in Canada, and Mexico will be building over 900,000. You see, so when GM says that a part of their master strategy is that they build cars where they sell, you know that their comments are completely disingenuous. And why do I say that? Because today we buy over 300, Canadians buy over 300,000 cars a year from General Motors and we build over 300,000 vehicles a year from General Motors. And if you take a look at the numbers from Mexico, and if you take a look at the numbers this year, Canadians are buying about 45% more vehicles from that are made by General Motors than Mexico. And year over year, you look at the Mexican numbers go down. So the question becomes, is General Motors disingenuous when they say that they build the cars where people purchase them? Were they disingenuous when they committed to us that they were keeping the plant open through the life of the agreement? Or was today all about their stock prices and a message to the shareholders? So we've got a problem here. And that's why we're here today. Because if we've got a problem, General Motors has a problem. Because I don't know how General Motors expects 
that Canadians are going to continue to support them as a country when they clearly have no intention of treating us as a nation and as workers with any respect. So this is time that we had a broader discussion. I had a discussion yesterday with the provincial government. We're flying to Ottawa. I'm likely meeting with the Prime Minister tomorrow, with Colin and Greg, and with our team, where we're going to say to the government that we are have to use every trick, every tool. We're going to have to use all of the power of government to make sure that General Motors understands that they're not betraying this country again. Because look at what they have done to the manufacturing footprint in this country. Look at the plants they've closed. Look at the products they've moved from Canada to Mexico. The terrain. They moved to Silverado, our truck. The Sierra, our Equinox. They're building it. We can walk through the different closures. They are going to be building 900,000 vehicles, of which the overwhelming majority were ours. So at some time or another, GM is going to have to understand that we're not going to take it sitting down. And at some time or another, we're going to change things in Mexico because Mexican auto workers that work for General Motors are paid $2 an hour and can never afford to buy the cars that they build, and I say that's a blasted shame. So the message today to General Motors is we are not going away without a fight. You can announce that we don't have a product after 2019, but we can say to you, as you make decisions about reallocating our product, including our Camaro, as you have made decisions that have negatively impacted Canadian workers, you can make different decisions. Because as they have made the decision to move our jobs to Mexico, they can absolutely make the same decision to bring our jobs back. So we will spend the next year fighting tooth and nail. We have requested a meeting with Mary Barra immediately. We have requested a meeting with Gerald Johnson, who allocates production, makes the recommendations to Mary Barra. And we're going to have a very straightforward discussion with them on what needs to be done. Because this is a shame, and it is a crime, and it is a betrayal, and we're not going to accept their decision, not one iota. The only decision that we're going to accept is the decision that they made in 2016 that says that we are going to be building trucks and our plant was going to be staying open for the life of the agreement. That's the only decision that we're going to accept here today. So we will be calling on you. We will be calling on you soon, and we will be calling on you often. Because this is going to be a challenging time for all of us, including General Motors, as we find the resolution to this situation. But we are sick and tired of being pushed around. We're not going to be pushed around.
And we're not going to let General Motors jerk us around. You know why? Because we deserve better, that's why. Nobody's given us anything. We've earned it. We are the best plant by every matrix. We win every award, and we damn well deserve respect. That is uh, Jerry Dias uh, speaking in Oshawa following the news that uh, GM plans to uh, end production at their uh, plant. Just to finish my point I was making just before we went to that, then we'll uh, we'll move on. It, I mean, and he's, Jerry Dias has t- kind of talked about it right there in terms of they're going to fight, they're going to try and keep the jobs. I mean, it's you can try to put the, together the packages you want in terms of financial or otherwise, but it almost sounds as though General Motors uh, isn't interested. If they are, maybe they're playing the, the best game of poker, but uh, sometimes it's hard to attract that those jobs when the other side isn't even willing to come to the table. Maybe they are, but everything we've heard so far indicates um, General Motors not interested. We will uh, leave that there. We'll take a quick break. When we come back, we'll have more of London Live. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on 980 CFPL. Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs. Stay tuned to 980 CFPL for uh, the latest on the developing story of uh, General Motors leaving Oshawa. The uh, afternoon news will keep you updated in the coming days, tomorrow and beyond. Uh, the Craig Neal Show and this London Live will uh, have more to come on the uh, closure in Oshawa. I do want to uh, switch our focus before we run out of time today because... Uh, there's more I want to get to. There's increased awareness these days of naloxone due to the impact opioids have had and how deadly they can be. So as the country deals with the opioid crisis, we've seen some school boards in the country implement naloxone programs, school-based naloxone programs, as a way to provide secondary school administrators, teachers, and students access to kits, naloxone kits. Naloxone kits can reverse an opioid overdose. It may be a good idea, but it is also a costly one. Naloxone kits can be expensive, and school boards, as we know, can have some limited budgets. Enter researchers from Western University. They have created a tool to examine cost-effectiveness of naloxone programs in high school. Uh, To discuss this, we're joined by uh, Lauren Cipriano, a Ph.D. assistant professor at Schulich Medicine and Dentistry, as well as Ivy Business School Western. Uh, Appreciate your time today. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me today. Uh, Well, this is certainly uh, timely, given everything we're seeing nationally with opioids and naloxone kits. What was sort of the impetus for creating this tool? Is it just the, the rise that we've seen of naloxone kits and their availability? We saw an article about uh, the Toronto District School Board uh, considering this decision and deciding uh, to implement these. And we are aware, uh, certainly, of the opioid epidemic across Canada and uh, that it is affecting people of all socioeconomic classes and all ages. Certainly, it also affects individuals who are of high school age. And so uh, we understood why high schools might be thinking about this. But given their extremely limited budgets, just because something isn't even uh, isn't particularly expensive. It doesn't necessarily mean it's high value, and uh, schools are particularly 
low-risk setting for opioid overdose. And so we were interested in under what conditions it could possibly be a cost-effective public health intervention to be putting naloxone into schools. So what did your uh, study find? So there are two major uncertainties, uh, how often an overdose might occur and how effective naloxone kits would be above and beyond existing emergency medical response in, uh, in the city of Toronto. And so we found that there would need to be at least one overdose per year across the Toronto District School Board secondary schools and that the program would need to reduce overall overdose mortality by at least 40, almost half of what it is um, given current EMS service. So right now in Toronto, uh, the overdose mortality uh, when uh, when somebody calls 911 uh, for a suspected opioid overdose, uh, the mortality rate's about 10%. And so we'd need to see that go from 10% to 5% because of early intervention by teachers or staff at schools for this to be good value for money compared to other public health interventions that we do in our communities or in our schools. It's, it's unfortunate for it to be cost-effective. You need there to be more situations where it's used, but ideally you wouldn't want that to be necessary. Certainly. We don't want to see um, any overdoses in schools, uh, but uh, it is more valuable to be preventing things that are common. And so fortunately, this continues to be uh, extremely rare as uh, something that uh, could happen. Uh, There are stories across uh, Canada of high school aged individuals dying of opioid poisoning. Uh, Approximately 2% of all opioid deaths uh, last year were in people under the age of 19. So this is a serious issue affecting that demographic. Uh, And there are stories at U.S. high schools of overdoses happening inside schools, but uh, there are no reports in Canadian high schools of overdoses, fatal or non-fatal, happening in high schools. So this would be a very uh, rare or low-risk setting, and so investing a lot of resources in preventing something that uh, is unlikely to happen, um, those resources could be spent on something that uh, maybe is going to have uh, higher benefits because it's preventing something that is a more frequent bad occurrence. Well, meaning, but maybe not be maybe not necessary, essentially. Uh, yes, I, I think so. So there are other things that schools could be investing in the same amount of money and perhaps getting better benefits for uh, students in their schools. And so uh, there are many other public health programs that we do run in schools that um, add value to students. And so we can think about nutrition programs or sexual health and pregnancy prevention or drug use awareness and prevention programs. Um, drug use in general is going down amongst high school age students. Uh, over the last decade, there has been a reduction in drug use, but um, fentanyl contamination in uh, the opioid supply does make opioid use more dangerous than it's ever been before. Have you presented the research to uh, school boards? And if so, what was their response? We have not presented uh, research to school boards, but uh, but we have shared this research with them. Uh, and, and we have uh, the tool we built is available on the journal's website. And so any school board um, across Ontario or uh, Canada or internationally could download the tool and change the inputs so that they suit their own school district. They can uh, put in the number of schools they have, the amount it would cost them to train their teachers, um, and the expected number of overdoses um, and the expected benefit of having overdose uh, prevention kits in 
in their schools so that they can calculate how this works out for their school uh, because it's possible that the cost effectiveness of this intervention would vary by school district or even by school. It's quite interesting, uh, Lauren, and I certainly appreciate your time today. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. That is uh, Lauren uh, Cipriano, Assistant Professor at Schulich Medicine and Dentistry and the Ivy Business School at Western. I mean, it's certainly timely, uh, something that um, I can imagine a lot of schools, school boards, parents even thinking about uh, to have these kits and to have the tool available is, uh, I think, absolutely fantastic. But maybe it's it's well-meaning to do it, but maybe ne- maybe not necessary in the end, just based on how frequent you need to have uh, those overdoses. And ideally, in a positive world, uh, you wouldn't have those overdoses at school. But as we know, it's uh, life does not always unfold the way in which we would wish it to. Uh, but a very uh, useful and timely uh, tool for school boards, to say the least. We need to stop for news. When we come back, more of London Live. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on Global News Radio 980 CFPL. Are you looking for a new home? Many people are. The real estate market has been on quite the roll for the past few years. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on London Live. If you are looking for a new home, are you worried you won't be able to afford one if you were to find one? That home ownership is out of your reach? Well, a new survey suggests that despite surging home prices across Ontario, the London region still has some very affordable real estate. Affordable can mean something different for everyone, but compared to other areas, it would not surprise me. Data compiled by Zucasa.com, a real estate listing website, has found home prices have increased between 11 and 24% in the London area, but London area buyers making the medium household income will still be able to afford an average priced home in their region. We've certainly seen a lot of people move to London from Toronto or move to London from other parts of the province because our homes here are affordable. One of the problems that we've seen in London is just the fact that inventory is so low. One of the reasons our prices are going up in London is that low inventory, less choice, higher price. Penelope Graham is the managing editor at Zucasa.com. She joins us now. Thanks for your time today. Hello. So this is uh, quite uh, an interesting uh, little look at um, uh, home affordability, in particular in the London region. How does uh, the London area compare to other parts of the province in terms of affordable real estate? Mm -hmm. Well, so the purpose of this study um, was to gauge whether or not the average home buyer could afford real estate within the London region. And to determine that, um, we sourced all the home prices from the London St. Thomas Realtors Association for the month of October. And then we did a calculation that determined how much of a minimum salary would you need to earn to qualify for a mortgage on that average home. And we did this for London, Elgin, Middlesex, Strathroy, and the St. Thomas counties. And in each, we found that if you're earning the, min- the median income, you would actually be able to afford the average priced home in each of these counties. And in comparison to other markets in Ontario, um, that's actually quite unique. So we did this study um, for, you know, areas around the GTA as well as some of the more northern Ontario uh, markets. And in some of the most expensive markets, uh, buyers are actually looking at an income gap uh, rather than an income surplus. 
So um, obviously Toronto is one of the most expensive. If you're earning the median income there, you're actually over $40,000 short of affording the most affordable home. Uh, and then the one that was actually the most expensive in the province is Richmond Hill, uh, where you would be $47,000 short. Um, but in comparison, in London, we're finding that if you're earning the median income, you are um, you have a salary that is sufficient to qualify for the average price home in your region. I think that's something that would probably surprise a lot of people just because of all the attention we've seen on, you know, home prices and the real estate market over the past, you know, three, four years. Um, people may not view it in terms of their specific city. and It's just viewed as more of a monolith. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it is true that the London region um, is heating in terms of real estate. We know that inventory is at uh, a historical low. There's not a lot of choice out there for home buyers. And that is putting upward pressure on prices. So we did find that um, in each of these counties, the year-over-year price increase is in the double-digit percentages. But even with this increase factored in, uh, if you're earning the median income, which is you know half of home buyers, uh, you're still within the realm of affordability in terms of mortgage qualification. London is close to Toronto, but not so close we'd be a bedroom community. Does that play in, in London's favor in terms of uh, better affordability? So the factors behind London East, which was the most affordable on our ranking, uh, has a slightly lower average home price. It's just over $300,000. And the median income in London is just over $62,000. So in this particular market, you're actually earning 40% at 46% higher than what you would need to qualify. Um, So those are some of the factors at play behind affordability in that particular market. Uh, The second most affordable was St. Thomas. Uh, So median income earners there earning just over $61,000. And the average home price is just over $315,000. So you're actually earning 44% more than what you would need to qualify. And then rounding up the top three is Strathroy. So median income earners there earning just over $66,000, and that's 37% higher than what you would need to qualify. Uh, Slightly higher home price here at just over um, $354,000. That was going to be my next question because it's interesting that uh, East London comes out on top, but it's, you know, there are parts of London where it's really kind of growing in the East, so that does kind of fit. And as you say, you're looking at some of the numbers in terms of uh, median income. Certainly that income goes a lot farther in the East part of the city. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, it, it's really dependent on, A, what is the average home price? Do you have a lower average home price? That's certainly going to factor into affordability. Um, but really, incomes are the key to home affordability. They have to be high enough for a local buyer to, A, purchase that home, and then, B, carry the resulting mortgage. Uh, and we're finding that in the London region, that's the case still. Uh, was it, was, were there any results from this that kind of surprised you on your end? We did find that because affordability is so widespread, as you had picked up before, because the market is heating. Um, it was a little bit surprising to see that it was still so firmly within the realm of affordability. Uh, and that certainly might change in the coming years if this activity continues. And um, I think especially given, you know, its proximity to major urban centers in southern Ontario, um, that could certainly make it more attractive for people who are looking to drive until they qualify, is the term we use in the real estate industry. Um, so it positions it as a, quite an attractive region for real estate. 
Well, we have seen a lot of people move from Toronto and other parts of uh, maybe the GTA to uh, London uh, be- just because of some of what you're talking about, those median incomes being a little bit lower in other parts and just the house prices and uh, is, are just so sky high, it, it could be difficult for a lot of people. That's correct. And, you know, especially with your first-time millennial home buyers. In an urban center like Toronto, where the average home price is close to $800,000 right now, and and that's after a decline from last year, uh, their affordability options are considerably limited. So if you have the job flexibility, location flexibility to go to a market where it's a little bit more feasible, uh, we're seeing a, a greater percentage of prospective buyers doing that. It's uh, quite interesting, Penelope. I certainly appreciate your time today. Thank you very much. Thank you. That's Penelope Graham from Zucasa.com. We need to pause. When we return, we'll have more of London Live. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on 980 CFPL. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs. Mike will be back tomorrow. Let me ask you a question. Who do you think is nicer, Canadians or Americans? The stereotype would say Canadians. Who would you think is happier? Might be a little bit more difficult to say. If you want an answer to these questions, linguistic experts from McMaster University say a good place to look is online. Twitter, to be exact. A new study based on 37 million tweets from Canadians and Americans says if you follow a lot of Canadians on Twitter, you are more likely to read cheerful words like thanks, amazing, and please. If you follow a lot of Americans, you're more likely to see emojis, swear words, and expressions of negative emotions like hatred and anger. To talk about this, we're joined by the co-author of the study, Briar Snefula. Thanks for your time today. Hey, no problem. Well, I was intrigued by this uh, study for a couple reasons. One of them is it's not too often we look to Twitter to see if people are nice or not, but if you're a linguist, I guess it's a good place to go. Well, yeah, um... And I should say the, uh, the, the positivity difference that we found between the most characteristic uh, words for Canadians and Americans was unexpected. Um, so we, we didn't go to Twitter hunting for, for this difference <laughs> in positivity, but we found it. So what made you want to uh, look into this before we kind of get to some of what you found? Sure. So really we wanted uh, to, to comment on this really, really old debate in social psychology. Um, that Ken and the U.S. have been at the center of for actually decades. Um, the question has always been, why do we think people from different nations have different personalities on average? Why is there you know, a stereotype of an average French person or an average American or an average Canadian? Um, where do these beliefs come from? Because basically those decades of research have, have shown that whatever stereotypes we hold about, say, what an average Canadian is like and an average American is like in terms of their personality, are not true. So if it's not that we're just like that, where do these beliefs come from? And so we're stepping in with our Twitter data to try to address that question. So how did you try and, and uh, figure out some sort of answer to that question, and, and what did you find? So um, what we're suggesting, uh, based on, on uh, our Twitter data, is that we, we might... Uh, derive those stereotypes from how people from different nations talk. So how we did that, we gathered 40 million tweets from Canada and the U.S., and we quantified the, the words that are sort of most diagnostic of you being Canadian and most diagnostic of you being American. Um, and then if you just 
well, first look at the, the what the words are, you see um, that all of the differences are not, you know, are dialects. They're not Canadian, say, pop, and Americans say soda. It's all psychologically interesting stuff. We are joined on the line by Briar Snefula from McMaster University. Canadians are, I guess, you know, a bit more polite. You know, we say thanks, we say amazing, we say please. Americans, uh, a little bit different. Yeah, it's swear words that are most characteristic of Americans. It's um, uh, words about negative emotional states, uh, hate, bored, miss. Um, And it's, uh, 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 you know, just really systematically negative when we're, we're able to measure that as well, and it's, it's quite systematic. So that, that kind of fits with the stereotypes of Canadians and Americans. Did that surprise you? Um, it is. You know, there's, there's, no, um, there's no sort of uh, reason to expect that if you just went into a big sample of Canadian-American language use and you just asked, you know, what words do Canadians use more than their fair share? What words do Americans use more than their fair share? There's no reason that, it, you know, the stereotypes have to fall out of that. That's what's really surprising about our finding. Uh, I'm kind of curious, this kind of goes beyond what you guys were studying, but I'm kind of curious what a Canadian in the United States would tweet like and what an American in Canada would tweet like. <laughs> We've wondered about that, too. It's hard to make that, uh, it's hard to make that de- determination. In- that, uh, you know. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Who's originally from Canada? Well, even the, yeah, and then and then there's you know different you know you can't tell from Twitter based on you know how long a person's been in a certain country. So it's uh, it's it's just a it's a decide kind of interesting. I guess there's nicer, and then I from reading about this, you know, there's Canadians seem to be generally happier. Is it easier to ter- tell if we are happier versus nicer, or what's what's the easier kind of conclusion to make here? Well. So one thing about the the you know divergence in the positivity of our most characteristic language that actually might have some basis in in fact because in, in sort of measures of general well-being you do see um Canadians coming coming out a little a little ahead of the US same thing with measures of subjective uh, subjective well-being um and there's been some previous research that has linked sort of um greater positivity on on social media uh, to sort of better health outcomes, better well-being in, in areas where that where that data is gathered from. So that the, the positivity divergence might have to do with you know something something a fact about Canada. Um, it's just you know when it comes to personality traits and this debate about personality traits, there's there's sort of no no such thing as a as a difference between an average Canadian and an average American personality. As far as you're aware, has anyone looked at this before? Or, or done something like this? That no, the only reason I ask is uh, because I'm guessing not, probably, but um, just in terms of whether or not we're nicer than before, or the Americans are angrier than before, or, or whether we can compare this to different points in time. So, um, in terms of comparing countries, uh, I don't know of anybody who's who's done it done it like us before. There are people who do track the overall level of positivity on Twitter at a given time. Um, there's a great service called um, Heatonometer. You can go go to yourself to the website heatonometer.org, um, and you can uh, see how the the positivity of Twitter evolves over time. And you do see. Um, uh, some pretty large dips in overall Twitter positivity around the um, 2016 election. It's uh, certainly quite interesting. I certainly appreciate your time today. Thank you very much.
Hey, no problem. That's Briar Snefula, a linguistic expert from McMaster University and the co-author of a study that suggests language used in tweets reflects the overarching national stereotypes about Canadians and Americans. We need to pause. When we return, we'll have more of London Live. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on Global News Radio 980 CFPL. Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs. There was a uh, story that uh, came across the wire today out of China. And there's this uh, scientist who is claiming he has been successful in editing genes uh, for some twin girls that were just born. And so what's happened in in the past, uh, scientists and doctors have been able to edit the genes of a living person to fix something. That technology, that ability exists, but what has happened here is they've been able to, they claim anyway, this has not been uh, corroborated, this has not been uh, uh, peer-reviewed, this is just the claim from the Chinese uh, researcher and his American counterpart. Um, so that there's that uh, caveat there. They claim they've been able to edit genes before these twins were born, and the edit was done so that the uh, children would be immune uh, to getting the AIDS virus. Which, on the one hand, is kind of neat, kind of cool, possibly kind of great. But on on the other hand, there's a lot of unknown. You don't know what the uh, ramifications are of this. Number one, you've done testing on human beings, which raises ethical questions. Number two, they do not know what impact this could have on other genes. Number three, it's just when you get into the realm of editing genes and DNA, you get into a, a gray zone. So, I mean, I, I would agree with, you know, the general sentiment that it's if, if you can stop someone from getting HIV, say, that's a pretty good thing. But if we can do that, knowing the ramifications, it's better, but we do, don't yet know what could come from this. Apparently there were um, seven different families that participated in this study. Doctors aren't saying who uh, these uh, children are and who their parents are. That is being kept uh, anonymous for now. But then you get into potentially cloning and you get into all sorts of things that is just uh, a whole debate that's going to wrinkle your brain. Like, is it ethical for people to live 200 years, say? On the one hand, you say, yeah, I want to live 200 years, but you know how old you are when you're like 95? Feel how old you are now sometimes. You have knee surgery, you're like 45 years old, and your your knee hurts. You want to have your knee hurt after having knee surgery at 45 for another 100 years, 150 years? How do you feed everybody for all 200 years old? we got enough problems feeding the world now. We're close to we're nearing like, what, 8, 9 billion? Is that ethical? I don't know. We don't have time to get into it now. And now that I've kind of brought it up, I kind of want to get into it more. But um, I just say that now to whet your appetite. Something to come down the road, but uh, an interesting debate for sure. My thanks to uh, Joe Graves, to uh, Lauren Cipriano, to uh, Penelope Graham, to Briar, Briar Sneffela for coming on the show today. Thanks to Matt McKinnis for his work on the program. Today's audio gem is a clip from the NHL. Calgary Flames coach Bill Peters 
was hit in the face by a puck in Sunday's game between Arizona and Calgary. Happened in the second period. He left to get stitched up, and 10 minutes later, he was back behind the bench like a good old Canadian boy. After the game, he spoke about what happened and had some good lines. Have a great day. Mike Stubbs will be back with you tomorrow at 1 o'clock. Got to ask you how that moment felt because it looked awfully scary. Well, I think it's going to hurt more tomorrow, right? So, you know, one of those things, there's not a lot of room out there. You got to be paying attention. So, just move on. Eight yeah. stitches, right? And uh, yeah. were you feeling a little woozy afterwards? A little bit, but not yeah. bad. And so and they did a good job, got me stitched up and back to work. Bit of a rough day for your face. Uh, shaving, shaving <laughs> Every day is a rough, <laughs> rough day for my face. Every day, 365. Uh, <laughs> I didn't mean that way. I apologize. Yeah. No. Hey, I'm with you. <laughs>